Genesis 19, we'll be starting in verse 14, and to give a little context here, this is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the angels coming down to Sodom, they were going to stay the night in the square, but Lot urged upon them to stay in his home, there was an attack, and they um, pulled Lot inside, saving him. Then they tell him his errand that they've come to destroy the place because the outcry against the Lord is great. The judgment of God is coming is their message. And let's start in verse 14 and we'll go through 17. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angel urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought him outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. You may be seated. On one of my trips, I was in South America, and we were riding along a river that's actually... um, runs into and dumps at some points into the Amazon River, and it actually flows faster and harder than the Amazon River. And for the most part, when we got on, our guide told us, you know, enjoy the time, uh, look around, you probably don't see stuff like because it's deep in the jungle, you probably don't see stuff like this all the time, but when I give you a signal, you need to move as little as you possibly can, and whatever you do, don't stand up. And he said, what it is, is there's, there was an Indian guide on the front who stood as a lookout, and as you're going along, he would spot these whirlpools, and they're really hard to see, but he's been doing it long enough, he knows where they are, and so when we got close, he would signal that one of these was close, because even though it doesn't look like it's going to do anything now, if you get close to it and the boat rocks, he said, there is no chance of survival, it is going to suck you down. And so that's what happened, we would ride along, and we were enjoying everything, and then when he gave the signal... We sat still as a mouse. There was a sense of urgency and there's a sense of diligence. And that's what's going on in this passage. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of diligence that the signal has gone up. There's danger. Five times in this section, this word escaped is used. And two times in the passage, we read these words, up, get out of this place. The thing being communicated here is an intentionality. As I said, it's a sense of there's, there's an urgency about this present situation. And when the biblical writers talk about the Christian life and they talk about what it means to follow God in the context of what is going on in the world and what will happen in the world finally, there is this sense of diligence. There's this sense of you need to be, have a sense of readiness about you. And everywhere the Bible writers talk about this, they use these types of terms. Listen to just a few of these. Hebrews 2.3, how will we escape? There's the word again, escape, if we neglect so great a salvation. 
Listen to Matthew 3. This is John the Baptist. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Hebrews 4. Therefore, be diligent to enter that rest. 2 Peter, same thing. Applying all diligence. Paul talks about fighting the good fight of faith. And Christ in Luke 13 talks about striving to enter in through the narrow gate. Striving. There's a sense of urgency and a sense of diligence. And we see this really well. Um, If you will turn with me to Matthew 25. We see this really well in the parable of the ten virgins. Matthew 25. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For the foolish took their lamps... For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil at all with them. But the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. Now when the bridegroom was delaying, when that's a theme in all of the parables, this whole thing of there's a delay, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. This is what we're talking about. It's easy to get drowsy. And the biblical writers are constantly saying, don't get drowsy, stay on alert. But they begin to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, and behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us, and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in. They were ready. They went in to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And listen to the exhortation, the same thing that we're reading in Genesis 19. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. There's a sense of urgency about this thing of being a Christian. John Bunyan captures it in Pilgrim's Progress. Many of you have read that and know this passage. So I saw in my dream the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door when his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, Life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain. See, there's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of diligence. There's a sense of there is something that is more important than absolutely anything else in this world. We need to cultivate this earnestness about the Christian life because when you have the mentality that the Christian life is often talked about in the Bible and can be viewed through the lens of an escape, that's what we're doing right now as a Christian. One of the ways you can look at what we're doing is we are escaping. When you have that mentality, it changes everything. It changes the way you think about things. It changes the way you structure your priorities. There's this sense of, I am here to escape. Now, lest we get the wrong idea that this is somehow survival of the fittest, the Bible gets very clear here in Genesis 19 that Lot is going to make it out 
but not by virtue of himself. And that's what's amazing in this passage to me, is when you read this passage, Lot is not the hero at all. And as a matter of fact, all you have to do is keep reading on in Genesis 19. A little later, he's going to, plan, he's going to, he's going to be drunk. Before this, he's making all the wrong choices. So Lot is emphatically not the hero here. This is not survival of the fittest. Listen to verse 16. The angels come to him. They've warned him, escape up, take your wife and get out of here. You're going to be swept away in the punishment of the city. That's 15. But in 16, he hesitated. One commentator notes, even brimstone cannot make a pilgrim out of Lot. He's hesitating. I mean, the fire is looming. Judgment is looming. And Lot is hesitating. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hands of his wife and the hands of his two daughters. The angels grab him by the hand for the compassion of the Lord is upon him. And why was the compassion of the Lord upon him? We read in verse... um, In verse 29, we read more about this. It says, Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst. So here, Lot is saved by virtue of another. God thinks of Abraham and saves Lot. And so this is a perfect picture and a beautiful illustration of what happens in the gospel. The compassion of the Lord is upon you. You want to know why you're here this morning and you're not somewhere else. Do you want to know why you are following God and someone else is not? I have um, some dear friends back home in Birmingham. They're twins. They're identical twins. Very hard to tell apart. One of them is following the Lord. The other one is not. What makes the difference? Verse 19, the compassion of the Lord is upon him. Why? By virtue of another. The work person and the work of Christ. And what happens? The angel sees Lot in them by his hands, but that's not what happens in conversion. The Holy Spirit comes and seizes you by your heart. He gives you new desires, new will, and you find yourself outside and on the road to escape. And so at the very outset of this message, we need to see what the Bible is telling us. Lot is not the hero here. This is not survival of the fittest. This is all of grace. It is initiated by grace, and it is carried on by grace. So we need to remember that. We would have spent the rest of our life hesitating if the compassion of the Lord had not been on us. Well, let's talk about two elements of this. This section, we'll talk about the context of the escape and the conditions of our escape. Number one, the context of our escape, we are escaping a coming judgment. Now that is so basic, that is Christianity 101, but brethren, we forget it and we don't believe it. God is going to judge the world. The judgment of God is coming. It is a certain reality. And so easily we can slip into this thing of not living like the judgment of God is coming. Like there's, there's not the great wrath of God is not coming upon this world. You know, there's some footing, footage of a devastating tsunami that hit um, years ago. And on the footage, the, the tsunami sirens are blaring. There's all these alarms going off. And when the video pans, you can still see people just walking along the beach. Yeah. And that is a perfect picture 
of what goes on in most of the world today. And as Christians, if we're not careful, we can slip into the same mindset. The sirens are going off. The angel is saying, escape for your life. And you're still walking along the beach. We need to take care, brethren. We need to heed these things. And we need to constantly be brought back to this truth. And I think it's so well illustrated in an um, interview with Martin Lloyd-Jones many, many years ago on this subject. Um, I'll read you a little synopsis of this because I think it captures it so well. We want to think about anything except the coming judgment of God. And that's what this interviewer was trying to do. He was trying to get Lloyd-Jones to basically say something aside from flee from the wrath to come, but he wouldn't let up. This is what he says in a 1980 interview. Lloyd-Jones was asked the question, what do you think Christianity ought to say to the economic situation today? He answered, I think the great message we must preach is God's judgment on men and the world. Dr. Lloyd-Jones went on to underscore the importance of the message when he said the condition of the modern world proves that we must preach more than ever the message, escape from the wrath to come. Later in the interview, Lloyd-Jones was asked whether or not Christian influence could produce a Christian culture, to which the preacher replied, no, it will never come. All the scripture is against that. It is impossible. In the present world situation, it has never been more critical. All civilization is rocking, and we are facing collapse morally, politically, and in every other way. I would have thought that surely at this time our urgent message must be flee from the wrath to come. And as the interview came to a close, Martin Lloyd-Jones was asked, what parting word would you have for secular man or woman who does not take Jesus Christ seriously? What do you think he's going to say? <laughs> Flee from the wrath to come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the great thing. When you read the Bible, does it, does it, did it occur to you that Christ, that Christ talked more about hell than he did about heaven? It's incredible. All throughout the Bible, we're constantly being brought from the prophets all the way to Revelation. Well, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. But you just see this trend. The judgment of God is coming upon this world. Never forget the context that we live in. There's an urgency about our present situation. Listen to Peter. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar <clears throat> and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? And this brings us back to the original point that when you have this mindset, it changes the way that you think. It changes the way that you view reality, even as a Christian. This is not just for lost people. Even as a Christian, it changes the way that you view reality. Since the earth is going to be burned up in this way, what sort of people ought we to be? What should be our priorities? That's the context of our escape. Judgment is coming. So we have that exhortation, escape for your life. What about the conditions of our escape? There's two that are listed here in Genesis 19. The first one is do not look back, and the second one is do not stay in the valley. Let's look at the first one. He says, do not look back on your escape. We are those that have been saved. 
God is taking you by the hand. It would be better to say He is taking you by the heart. He's changed your desires. He's made you a new creation. Now you love what He loves, at least in a measure, and you hate what He hates. Imperfect, but praise God, we're out the door. Praise God, we are out the door and we're on this path escape. Escape for your life. What do we need to remember? The first thing that we remember is do not look back. Do not look back. This exhortation comes up again in the New Testament with Luke 9. You may have already thought about it. What did Christ say? No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Now, we need to understand what this means and what it meant in the context of here in Genesis 19. You know the story. Lot's wife looked back and she was judged immediately. Now, we need to know what that's not saying. This is not, she's not judged immediately because she glanced over her shoulder and saw what was going on back there. It's not this glancing, the physical look as though somehow if you had less peripheral vision, it would be a virtue. That's not what she's talking about here. That's not what the Bible's talking about here. If for no other reason, and we read in verses 27 and 28, it says, Now Abraham rose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. So two people look here, Lot's wife and Abraham, and only one of them is judged. So there's much more going on here than just the physical acts of, uh, act of glancing back. And we get more light on this as we almost always do in the New Testament. In Luke uh, 17.31, Christ expounds on this and explains a little more of what was going on here. It says this, he says, In that day, he which shall be on the housetop... And that day, he which shall be on the housetop, let him not come down and takes things away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not turn back, remember Lot's wife. So what's going on with Lot's wife here is much more than just a casual glance. Her heart is tied up with her stuff back in Sodom. That's where her heart's tied up, stuff back in Sodom. There's a worldliness that had permeated her heart. And brethren, how we have to guard against this. The Bible and the parable of the soils warns us about this thing of the word getting choked by the thorns. And what is so scary here is it's not this idea of a machete coming through and hacking down the thorns. It's this idea of choking slow, gradual growth. And I don't know if you've ever seen this. I don't think you guys have kudzu up here. You have kudzu? Conservation is shaking his head. You do not have kudzu. It's in Hannibal. It's in Hannibal. All right. Well, if you've ever been around it, you know that it takes over everything. And when I was home last time, I was surprised and shocked to see that some of the areas that I had played in as a kid, kudzu had just absolutely taken over it and choked the whole thing out. And what was amazing is, is I had never noticed it before. It had taken it, it takes it a while. Kudzu actually goes, grows faster than most stuff. But the idea here is it, it chokes things out. There's this slow growth that you don't notice it until one day you're suffocating in worldliness. Oh and that's what happened to Lot's wife. She got out into the valley and she stopped because her heart was back in Sodom. Brethren, we have to be diligent to guard our hearts because it is the wellspring of life. <clears throat> and let me just say here that this, uh, this is a great spot just to give an exhortation. Beloved, daily be reading your Bible. Daily. 
How can I plead with you? Daily be in the word of God. Because the thing that happens, what happens to Lot's wife and what happens to most of humanity is you don't have truth coming through your mind. You're not being brought back to the truth. And so slowly but surely what happens is, Romans chapter 12, you're conformed to the pattern of this world. I don't know if you've ever been out in the ocean or ever experienced the undertow, but at first when you walk out, if it's not really that strong, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a big deal. And so you can get carried away playing, and before you know it, you're way out to sea, and you didn't even realize it. And that's what happens in life. If we are not daily in the Word of God, daily bringing our minds back to truth and keeping our hearts in check, it is possible to fall into what Jesus Christ said when he said in the end times, the love of many will grow cold he doesn't they don't fall off a cliff they grow cold it's a slow process that chokes out life so one of the conditions of our escape beloved do not look back guard your heart it is the wellspring of life and the second one do not stay in the valley it is so tempting to stop in the valley you've been running for a while You've gotten out the door, you're on the way, and you're in the valley. And that's where we're at right now. We're all in the valley, every single one of us. If you're a Christian, you're still running in the valley. And the angels say, do not stop in the valley. The valley is a very appealing place. Let me just read you this from Genesis 13. When it talks about why Lot chose this, it says in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord. The valley, here's here's what you need to hear and know about the valley. The valley is full of good things. It's full of good things. And you've made, you may have heard this before, but it is so true. The enemy of the best is not the worst, it's the good. Most people walk around in a, most, in a stupor doing good type things. You can get caught up in anything. You can get caught up in gardening. You can get caught up in sports. You can get caught up in exercise. You just name it and you can get caught up in it and it can bog you down and stop you in the valley. And to some extent, let me just say, these, many of these things are good things. They're perfectly permissible. But it's very different when they captivate your heart. And in some senses, they're even necessary. I can remember many years ago, all in a, uh, what all I could term a theological tizzy over something. And I called Paul Washer. No, actually, I saw him. I saw, I saw him, and I was kind of pouring out my heart about it, just all worked up. And he put his hand on my shoulder and said, son, you need a hobby. <laughs> So I am not saying, I give you that illustration to tell you that I'm not saying that it is wrong to do any one of those things. But I am saying that many times it is easy to get caught up in the things of the world. And before you know it, you were running and you're kind of camped out in the valley. You're kind of camped out in the valley and you're just kind of, you know, browsing through some good things. You can still run and enjoy some good things. But brethren, guard your heart and realize the urgency of the situation. Choose the best things. Make those your priority. Enjoy God's good creation, but beware of camping out in the valley. So the question is, are you running? 
Hebrews chapter 12, very familiar passage, but a wonderful reminder. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance. That's what we're talking about here. Beware of choosing good constantly over the best. You'll get encumbered. And the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Brethren, don't just ask the question about things, is this permissible? Ask the qu- Let your question most often be, will this help me run? We are still in the valley, brethren. There's a temptation to look back. There's a temptation after year after year after year. You've been running into the va- in the valley for your love to start to grow cold and you want to settle down and you just want to be a little bit normal as the world defines normal. Just kind of drop some of the pressures off let, so that it's not quite so intense. And the riders everywhere come to us and say, don't stop in the valley. Never stop running. Never stop running. I gave this illustration years ago, but I love it. And so I want to give it again. It's the story of me when I was in grade school and um, was on the track team. And let me just, at the outset, if you've heard this story, you know this, but I just need to caveat this, that this story does not end with me in first place. All right? So it, it is not one of those stories. As a matter of fact, the way you got on the track team was not trying out. You just went and signed your name on a piece of paper. Like, there was, no, there was no competition here. So we were on the track team, and we had a meet coming up, and literally, we practiced two times. Two times they had us run. And so we're all gung-ho. We got our uniforms on, and we go up to the meet, and we're ready to go. And um, the, the one thing that they did tell us is, now, pace yourself, okay, because this is, this is a longer-type race. So you want to pace yourself, and man, when, when it's the time is right, right, right about on turn three, you really want to turn it on, and then you can put all the gas in the tank. Well, when the starter gun went off, my pace versus everybody else's pace was a very, we had very different ideas about what race pace was. <laughs> These guys took off, and literally, my, their, their pace was my dead sprint. And so I'm dead sprinting around this track, Losing hope with every step as the pack pulls away. And so we're running this race, and about halfway to the three-quarter mark, I realized, like, I, I can't, I'm not going to make it. Like, I cannot finish this race. And I'll never forget, I don't know if you've ever run really hard. If you've ever really run harder long enough, you start to get this tunnel vision. It's like all your oxygen is going out, and your, heart, your brain's like, all right, we'll give oxygen to you, you and you, everybody else, we're quitting. <laughs> All right, so you start to kind of get tunnel vision, and in my tunnel vision, I glanced up at the stands, and I saw my dad standing up. And it really, uh, to this day, I, I, can st- I can still see that, and it had such an impact on me, because when you're in last place, and I don't mean last place, I mean like no hope last place. <laughs> like, there's gonna, not going to be, like, there is no chance here. When you're in that, like, I was already, I was feeling ashamed, and I was feeling like a failure, and I thought, man, my dad's not, he's not ashamed of me. Like he's he like everybody knows that's my dad and his kids his kids the one that packs over here and his kids back there, brethren has it ever landed on you that God is not ashamed of you? Has that has that thought does that thought ever just run across your mind that God is not ashamed of you even with all of your failings? 
It's profound. Well, my dad stood up, and I could see him slowly start moving down the bleachers, coming towards the finish line. And when I saw that, I have no idea where this comes from, but if you've ever experienced it, it comes, I don't know what happens, some sort of gland somewhere that hasn't spent itself, that decides, all right, this is go time. So I start running like I had never run before. Keep in mind, I do not finish first. But I did start passing. I finally caught up with a pack, and eventually, at one point, I was in third place. It may have been fourth. It was no more than fourth. But I had caught the pack and got up into fourth place, and every time I could feel myself starting to lose it, I would look up, and I would see my dad, and he was a step closer. And finally, I could see him at the finish line, and he's waving. And, oh, man, I ran. But it was gone. It was gone. And so slowly and surely, I don't know if you know the term hit the wall. Get on YouTube and search for that. It's a terrible thing. Your body just literally runs out of gas. And I, but I did. I fell back, fell back, fell back. But finally, I fell over the finish line, and literally, he caught me. He caught me. Why did I finish the race? Because my eyes were on my dad. And I had a sense, man, he, he's not ashamed of me. His compassion is on me. He loves me and he's for me. Brethren, we are in the valley and we can't stop running. What is going to help you? Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. You need to daily be in the word and stir yourself up that I am unconditionally loved by God. I'm not out in the valley by myself. I've got to keep running, but my Father is with me and He will give you grace to keep your heart from getting tangled up in this world and you can run like you have never run before. Praise God for His grace. Let's pray. God, we confess, Lord, that oftentimes we look around us and we look within us and there's a sense of fear because we know we're still in the valley and we have a ways yet to run. God, we thank you for those great and precious promises that you have given us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God, thank you for your presence in the valley. So I pray that you would stir us up for urgency and diligence, that God, you would help us to be people who watch over our heart and we don't stop running. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.